Father, we ask that your spirit would be our teacher. God, we ask that you would please expose our vanity and the meaninglessness of of chasing after pleasures and toiling apart from you. We ask that you would completely transform us as a church. God, that you would shift the way that we think about pleasure and toil. We pray that those who see nothing else in this life, that they would discover today that you are the greatest joy and the greatest purpose in all the universe. And we ask all this in your strong and mighty name. And all those agreed said, amen. I um, asked Arnaldo to preach because I wanted a little bit of spice. You know, his Puerto Rican spice, when he reads the scriptures, is just, there's something about it. I just want to listen to Arnaldo. He could read forever, and I would just listen to him. Work and pleasure. These are the Siamese twins of this chapter of Ecclesiastes, chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes. In our culture, we work hard to play harder. Do we not? You can't really enjoy pleasure without expendable income. And so to get expendable income, we work really hard. Some cultural analysis have compared us to the Epicureans. The Epicureans were uh, people that loved pleasure, leisure, leisure, as I say, as an American. That's our culture. We love pleasure. We work hard to play harder. Uh, Other cultures, maybe not so much. America is more the the Roman Greco style of life, like wanting to be like the gods, the glory culture. We think here, though, that work will bring us purpose, meaning, and satisfaction, and that pleasure will bring us joy. Most people build their life on pursuing these things. But again, does work and pleasure really offer us ultimate fulfillment or joy? Can happiness and fulfillment even be found? The, pre- the preacher of Ecclesiastes, uh, the preacher, let me try that again, of Ecclesiastes is, is asking this hard question, but not just this hard question. He's asking all the hard questions. Questions like, what justifies my existence? And what is my life for? What is your life for? What will bring us meaning and purpose? Last week, Matt laid a great foundation uh, of, of the real circular nature of life. How life is like a treadmill. It just goes round and round and round. The monotonousness of life. It just never ends. The cycle never ends. And we jump from one treadmill to another to another. We go from study to career to family and so on and so forth. Matt told us that this book is really, it's designed to disrupt our souls. It's it's meant to show us that the things under this sun can never satisfy. Some people ask, why is Ecclesiastes in the Bible? And again, for those of you that weren't here for Matt's intro, Ecclesiastes is God's revelation of what life is like without God's revelation. The preacher, probably Solomon, is looking at life under the sun as if what he sees is all there is, as if God does not exist. You know that John Lennon song, uh, Imagine? You know, imagine there's no heaven, imagine there's no hell. Well, the preacher asks the question long before John Lennon does. 
The preacher in the first part of this book is looking into several common approaches to life under the sun. And, and we're going to skip over, actually, the last, cha- uh, last part of chapter 1. Um, but in the latter part of chapter 1, he looks at the vanity of wisdom and knowledge. And he, the preacher concludes that but they are vanity because uh, they only lead to sorrow and to grief. And the reason they lead to sorrow and grief is the more you know, the more you hurt. Again, we're not going to be speaking about this. Um, we're going to be getting to wisdom and knowledge later in the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, and for the sake of time, which is fleeting, right? We're going to leave this one today. And though the preacher in chapter 2 looks at toil after pleasure in the passage that Arnaldo read, I'm going to reverse it. I want to look at toil first and then pleasure. The first question that we often ask when we meet someone, what is it? When you meet someone new, what's the first question you ask? What do you do? What do you do? But, but we don't follow that question with, why do you do it, do we? Why do you do what you do? The average person works at least 45 years of their life. They spend exceedingly more time with their coworkers than they do with their friends and their family. We work really hard at what we do. We, we talk a lot about what we do. We stress a lot about what we do, but when it comes to providing for ultimate purpose and meanings, meaning our career, is really, it's a struggle to fit. So why do we work? To what end do you work? A life defined by toil is nothing new. The preacher understands our circumstances, and Ecclesiastes 2, 18 through 23, he addresses it head on. Most of us work for one of two things, the outer reward or the inner reward. But can either of this give us what we're really searching for? Well, we need to know what those are first, don't we? What's the outer reward? What's the inner reward? Firstly, we work for the inner reward of the satisfaction of a job well done. We like the feeling when we hear, well done for delivering what we said we would, when we said we would. We're seeking out dignity. We want to have this feeling of dignity, satisfaction. I've done what I said I would. And that's not really that bad of a thing, to be quite honest. Even the preacher says it's not that bad of a thing, but but then he pauses in this section of Scripture, and he says, actually, there, there is a problem. Death. I hate to be so morbid, but that's what the preacher says. No matter how many well-dones you receive, you can't take dignity with you. We, too, will die. Everyone has that in common. One out of every one person will die. Even the preacher of Ecclesiastes was brought low in regard to toil for this inner reward. I mean, the, the preacher of Ecclesiastes was a king. He basically excelled in anything that he put his hand to. But the fact that death was imminent was enough to bring this preacher low to the point of despair. He even questioned why he valued work at all. I can't take my job or my well-dones with me beyond the grave. Again, dignity doesn't supersede the grave. Okay? So if the inner satisfaction of a job well done doesn't have the legs to 
to, to get us over the finish line, maybe we should try on the outer motivations of legacy and riches. Maybe that'll help us. Maybe that's why we should work. In ancient cultures, uh, like the one the preacher lived in, remembrance was everything. If nobody remembered you after you were gone, then your very existence was invalid. Perhaps in our day, we don't have this same hope of others that they'll recall us. But we do have a weakness. Our, our weakness is a desire for recognition. We have a desire to be recognized. We want to be known for what we've done. I want to be the guy who wrote that jingle. Or I want to be the mom whose daughter achieved that thing. Or I want to be the woman who built that business. We each desire to be known, to be recognized, and I guess even to say to be remembered. In the end, are we making architecture or are we building a monument? Are we just trying to leave a legacy? Really, this is at the heart for all of us. When we talk about our careers, it's all about me, myself, and I. I wouldn't say it out loud, but it's all about me. I do this thing, fill in the blank, for me. This is my legacy. This is what I'm all about. This is what I live for. Again, if that's the case, you're simply making a monument. We won't be remembered like we want to. And death, which is never far from the preacher's mind, it annuls all. Life under the sun is terminal. Do you hear that? Life under the sun is terminal. There's no amount of shuffling of the deck chairs that can ever change the fact that the ship is going down. So the outward motivation of legacy isn't enough, then what about the outward motivation of riches? Let's try on that first size. Ecclesiastes 2.21 says, because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it, this also is vanity and a great evil. The preacher is saying, if you make the outward reward of material possessions your, your, your goal, then basically you not being able to keep it is bad enough. But then he goes on to say, not only will you not keep it, but still even worse is the fact that someone else is going to get all your stuff. And even if we do attain wealth, we're trapped in this need to always maintain it. What you strive to gain, you must also strive to maintain. You'll end up at the same conclusion that the preacher does. He says, it's all vanity. Verse 22 through 23 says, What has a man from all of the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. Here's the truth. If you work for inward satisfaction, legacy, or wealth alone, you will end up with nothing in the end. I'm sorry, but that's just truth. Uh, that design for, you know, that desire that we all have for, for permanence and significance and, 
And connection can't be satisfied in this way, though we go to it hoping that it does. We long for things that will endure, but we get but what we get from work can never provide enduring, lasting satisfaction. Remember in Genesis, it describes what life was like before the curse. How God created the world, he made it good, he created man and woman and gave them jobs. And when sin came into the world, what happened? Work changed. It became toil. And it threatened to leave us trapped in its chains in its web, in its treadmill. You remember the parable that Jesus tells of the rich, to the, of the rich man that, that kept acquiring goods? He kept getting more and more and more until his soul finally told him, hey, buddy, relax. You've got enough. Eat, drink, and be merry. Because you've worked so hard, you've earned it. And so we jump from one treadmill to another. We go from... Work not satisfying to pleasure. The Siamese twins. And I don't know if you guys have ever seen a YouTube video of people jumping off one treadmill to another. I've never seen that video. But I've seen the other ones where someone's like running and they just smack, you know, they eat it big time. It's not pretty. Imagine that even exasperated us trying to jump from one treadmill to another while it's running. It sounds ridiculous and yet that's what we do. Our culture tells us that pleasure is the way to find true happiness. A lot of people, in fact, move to city, you know, cities like Sydney because of, they see these places as urban playgrounds of sorts where they can have all the pleasure that they desire or they'll move to the suburbs and hope to recreate their ideal you know, family lifestyle where they'll ultimately find enjoyment. You can say that our culture shapes us to think this way in many ways. It educates us to believe if that we could do it all, then our lives would be perfect. Can pleasure justify my existence? Should I pursue pleasure as my existence? And what will happen to me if I build my life on pleasing myself? Should we pursue it? Should we pursue pleasure as an ultimate end? Oscar Wilde said, the only way to get rid of temptation is to yield to it. Great advice, right? The only way to get rid of temptation is to yield to it. The preacher tries his luck at testing pleasure as well. He says in verse 1, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. Literally, he examines pleasure. He tests pleasure in the Hebrew. He says, I'm going to put life into a test and test it with pleasure. This is the one exam you wish you had to take in uni, right? The pleasure test. Yes, please, sign me up. I'd like to take that test. And then, after he takes the test, he tells us the result he got on that test. He says, I took the exam and the result is vanity. Verse 1, but behold, this also was vanity. It was meaninglessness. It was absurdity. Now let's look at his year of research because he didn't just get to that conclusion that quickly. He did a, a lot of research into pleasure. These next few verses are basically a night out in Sydney. That's what they are. They're a night out in Sydney. 
Firstly, the preacher comes and he goes to, he turns to comic relief. He said of laughter, verse 2, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? Now, on laughter, the Bible says that laughing is, it's not wrong. It's why we laugh and when we laugh that can become wrong. The preacher is going to pursue laughter, not as, he's going to be pursuing it as a way of life. Many people say, don't take life too seriously. The Australian, you know, she'll be right, mate, you know. Don't worry about it. That sounds funny from an American. But that's how we look at life. But the preacher says, this is madness. He couldn't escape the obvious hard questions of life by covering it and masquerading it with laughter. Maybe some of you live like this. Anytime anything difficult comes, like death or sickness or tragedy, you just try and tell a joke to cover it up. You can't deal with the tough things of life. It's too tense. I can't deal with it, so I'm going to tell a joke. For some people, laughter is simply a way to avoid life's questions. It's a cover-up. One theologian said, the life of the party is often the loneliest soul in the room. That was true of me. It wasn't just true of me. It was my friend in high school. Uh, You know, he was the typical class clown. Everyone laughed at him. He always had those smart-ass remarks that just, they just cut, and everyone just loved his remarks. And uh, he was witty. He was quick. But you know what he didn't let on was that his dad died of cancer. And he was broken and depressed like no one I had ever known. And yet he covered it with laughter. He couldn't answer life's tough questions, so he tried on laughter. Smokey Robinson in his song, The Tears of a Clown, says this. I think it's behind on a slide. Now, if there's a smile on my face, it's only there trying to fool the public. But don't let my glad expression give you the wrong impression Really, I'm sad. Oh, sadder than sad. You're gone and I'm hurting so bad. Like a clown, I pretend to be glad. Now there's some sad things known to man, but ain't too much sadder than the tears of a clown when there's no one around. And on and on and on that song goes. Quite a sad song. Laughter as a way of life is madness, the preacher says. Maybe this isn't you. Maybe laughter isn't your thing. Maybe you're more of a connoisseur. Maybe wine is your thing. The preacher tries that too. Look at verse 3. I search with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold of folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. Again, alcohol is not bad in the Bible. It's abusing it that's bad, that's sin. If you're here, if you're a member of Anchor, part of our family, you're over 18, it's not a sin to enjoy alcohol. But sin comes when there's addiction, when there's drunkenness, when you're enjoying it contrary to your conscience, or when you're stumbling others. But the preacher here is clearly going into it full tilt. He's diving in. It says to wine, basically, in the literal words, come baptize me. Come immerse me in wine. The preacher is trying to medicate. And isn't that what most people do with substances? They try to medicate in order to deal with the difficulty of life, in order to avoid life's tough questions. Church, do you medicate with wine? 
In our culture, it's, it's even easier to do that. We have a culture where the pubs are the watering holes, so to say. They're where we go for community and, and to gather. And, and we don't think as a culture we have a problem, though we spend $36 billion a year on alcohol, because it's just, it's just what we do. It's just a part of our culture. But are we going to those things to find happiness, to find things that will make us happy, that will free us up to be ourselves and really help us to enjoy life? You need to ask yourself these questions, church. Maybe that's too depressing for you. Maybe you think, I'm not a wino. That's not my thing. Maybe that's not your pleasure. Maybe you're into building things. Well, the preacher says, I've done that too. He said in verse 4 through 6, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which even to water the forest of growing trees. And so maybe it's not comic relief or fine wine that's your thing. Maybe it's a creative outlet. Maybe it's accomplishment. Maybe it's building something. Now again, the Bible celebrates innovation and creativity and building. But the preacher asks the question, what are you building and why are you building it? To what end? Again, notice in this section, all the me, myself, and I, they're all over it. I built myself buildings. I built myself gardens. I made for myself fruit and plants and trees. I had an urban garden. I was the one. He did it all for himself. Even our best deeds, propaganda says, are an extension of our own selfishness. We do the things that we do oftentimes, the things that we build, even, even our good deeds are sometimes an extension of our selfish ambitions for glory or attention. He did it all for himself. Are you making art or are you making a monument? A memorial, sorry. Are you making art or are you making a memorial to the greatness of your name? Are you trying to be remembered for at least five minutes after you die? Why are you building? To what end? Maybe for some of you it's not creative outlet or building your careers, but it's power. It's control. It's influence. That's the thing that really, that's the high that you get. The preacher did that as well. He says in verse 7a, I bought or acquired male, female servants. I had slaves who were born in my house. I had all these people under me. The preacher had many, many, many people below him. He was in charge. He was on top. For some of you, being in charge gives you a sense of meaning and purpose. You like being in charge. You like being that person. You like being known. You have to be on top. Let me ask you the question. Do you guys like being envied by people? Do you like being envied by people? Do, do you talk about your career the way you do because you want people to envy you? Do you want to be recognized as someone that has people under you? Are you concerned with how many followers you have and how many people you influence on Instagram or whatever it is, fill in the blank? If that's you, you need to recognize that this is your way of getting high. I'm not like the winos. I don't find pleasure that way. I just want people under me. Or maybe for you, it's not these things even. Maybe you look to the, 
to find happiness uh, in simpler things, like retail therapy. Any of you guys retail therapists? Uh, I am sometimes. Thanks for your honesty. The preacher also looked into this. Verse 7b says, I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, which was awesome back then. Uh, If you would have had a cool publication, it would have been flocks monthly, right? (laughs) He had more than anyone who had been before him in Jerusalem. He gathered for himself silver and gold and treasures of kings and provinces. I had money, he says. I had stuff. One commentary called this intense consumerism. I have to buy things. I have to purchase things. It gives me pleasure. It makes me feel good. Again, possessions aren't bad. The Bible tells us that. It's all about our attitude towards them that becomes bad. Maybe it's not retail therapy. Maybe it's entertainment. So the preacher goes on. I got singers both men and women, in verse 8. I got it. I had it. I went to look for entertainment as the source of fulfillment. I got singers. I had a choir. I knew and enjoyed the arts. I was a connoisseur of the arts. He knew the beauty and the power of music. But in the end, it too was vanity. It was vain. It's nothing in the end. Again, you hear the same theme throughout the book. It's vanity, vanity, vanity. It's nothing in the end. And, and, and the list of pleasures would not be complete, would it, without sex, right? The list of, list of pleasures wouldn't be complete. The singer, uh, after the singers of both men and women, he says, I had many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. The Bible says that Sex was created by God for the intent of marriage. But the preacher is saying he wants to express himself and find fulfillment in his sexuality. He wanted to have as much of it as he wanted. He immersed himself in it. He says, I withheld nothing from me. He literally says, I had as much as anyone could have. And if the preacher is indeed Solomon, then we are told that he had upwards of 700 wives and 300 concubines. That's a lot. (laughs) Doesn't our culture say that if you want to discover who you are and have ultimate pleasure, you need to do so by expressing yourself sexually? Look inward to what drives you guys. And when you look inward, you're going to see that chief drive is your sexuality. And so, based on the most popular mantra known to man, if it feels good, do it, is the mantra of our culture. But the preacher says, this is empty. We're told again and again, just go for it, guys. Express yourself. Whether it's one or a thousand, just do it. Even the way we talk about sex is such consumerism, isn't it? Do it, get laid. I mean, all the terms that you talk about are all about consumerism. I read an article in the Sydney Morning Herald called Love Me Tinder. And it asks the question, is the hookup culture about liberation or exploitation? In the article, it says, romance is like so 1996. Flowers and chocolate are lame. Instant messaging and hooking up are the new courting. 
And sex is just a swipe of the mobile phone screen away. It goes on to say, Tinder has been dubbed sex satnav. The app allows people to check out who's up for a date in their area. Swiping a photo to the right indicates they like what they see and swipe to the left is a thumbs down. Only when a pair both like each other's picture can they exchange messages. Then it's on, a DTF, down to fill in the blank. Proposition might swiftly be followed by a hookup, it concludes. We live in a hookup culture. Whether you like it or not, Sydney has a hookup culture. The article suggests that this is emblematic of an increasing disposable culture that is devaluing sexual relations and causing a generation to emotionally tune out. It was said in another global article recently, at best we are a city of beautiful, uh, beautiful and creative people where the sex is as appealingly casual as the lifestyle. At worst, we're all surface and no soul, a population skittering from one empty hookup or misconnection to another. This is what so many live for. It ought not to be the case for us, church. We ought to look different. You might say, but yeah, Solomon, that's a bit excessive. Can, can, we really, can anyone really do that? Can anyone really have a thousand partners? The answer is yes, 100%. Do you know where we find the answers to that? Right here, guys. Right at our fingertips. Thousands of women and images. John Mayer, the well-known singer-songwriter, spoke frankly in, in an interview in regard to pornography, and he said that there would be mornings that he wouldn't get out of bed until he looked at at least 300 women. Houston, we have a problem. If you pursue your life for pleasure as the ultimate means, as the ultimate end, you'll end up with nothing, church. The preacher is found to be reflecting on this experience in the next few verses, verses 9 through 11. This is the reflection of his exam. He says in verse 9, So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. And my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil that I'd experienced and expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity. All was a striving after the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. That moment when you reflect on what you've done, when you've been, what you've been doing, how you've been living your life, the great morning after experience, when you start to ask the hard questions, what's it all for? What does it all mean in the end? The preacher had that same questioning. The preacher tells us he did it all. Sex, drugs, and ancient choirs. There's nothing that he didn't experience. The preacher says, I've been there. I've done that. He even acknowledged that temporary satisfaction was good for a moment. But then he asked the question, what happens when it all comes crashing down? What does it mean in the end? Where will you end up? If you take whatever you want and feed your every desire, I reckon you end up in the same place the preacher does, 
with the discovery of vanity, meaninglessness, absurdity, futility. In the end, the thrill of the chase is all you're going to get. Isn't that true of addiction? The appetite increases, but the pleasure diminishes. If you've ever been addicted to a substance, that's exactly what happens. You want more, but you're never satisfied. And then it gets even more and more twisted. And you need to try new ways. That's why why porn is the way it is. You could start by just watching one man and one woman, but eventually it just gets freaky and erotic. I, I hate to be so blunt, but that's what porn is. It's just this addiction. We always have this insatiable appetite for more and more and more. The thrill of the chase is all that we get, according to the preacher. Pursuing pleasure, it's deceiving because it's full of promise until you get it. Things addict us, but they don't appease us. We want more, though we enjoy it less. And this is what the preacher's getting at. Pleasure does not equal joy. But joy is what we're in search for, right? We all want joy. Lasting joy. Toil does not equal purpose and fulfillment. But that's what we're in search for, right? Fulfillment, purpose, satisfaction. We're looking for that one thing, that one group of people, that next creative project, that career Whatever it might be, fill in the blank. We're looking for that one thing for joy and purpose. But joy and purpose can't be willed. When you look at life, everything is fleeting. It's passing away. It's disappearing. The the preacher says it's like grabbing wind. It's just, it's gone. But if that's what you're looking for, if you're looking to those things, uh, under the sun, if you're, if you're looking for life under the sun to meet your needs, then can I say don't complain when it doesn't? Because it won't. Because those pleasures are only temporary. You're only temporary. They're not designed to be your everlasting. What you think promises freedom will only turn out to be slavery. At the heart, as we wrap up of this entire passage, is I, as we've said before, I, me, myself, my heart, my desires. It's really all about living the self-centered life. The problem of all this is in the heart. We want these things in our hearts. We are the problem. But we're told, be true to yourself. Just look in your heart, be true to yourself. What does it mean to be true to ourselves? I have all these conflicting desires in my heart. Sin is the abuse of all created things. It's choosing the created things over the creator, and it's birthed right here in our hearts. To seek pleasure and toil as your ultimate purpose is to alienate yourself from God. And this is why we experience guilt and shame, emptiness. If pleasure or toil is our master, then God isn't. Sin is choosing something over God. And Ecclesiastes 12 verse 14 says, For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. 
Every deed will be judged, and we will all be found empty and guilty before God. And this is in step with what Jesus said as well. Jesus affirms what the preacher says in Ecclesiastes when he says, What will it profit a man if you gain the whole world but you lose your soul? You can gain all the pleasure under the sun, all the toil until the sun sets can be yours. But it won't bring satisfaction without God. It's only going to bring spiritual death. What we need is true joy and purpose, and it's only found in God. The big questions of Ecclesiastes points to the answer of God, the Sunday school answer. What's the answer to all of this problem of Ecclesiastes? God is the answer. We look inward, or we look outward at our culture, but we need to look upward. The only thing that will satisfy is Jesus. The only thing that will satisfy church is Jesus. Where there's no real answers under the sun to our heart's desires for joy and purpose, Jesus is the better preacher king and he is the answer. Take toil, for instance. What's the solution? You've given me all the problem, Brian. What's the solution? I'm ready. Might there be some higher purpose to all of our toil? Could it be that our dissatisfaction and frustration with the limitations of work might drive us towards a higher view of things? A way that Jesus opens for us. All of our hard work and toil, it reveals that we need something that we cannot earn. You see, in work, we're trying to earn something. We're trying to earn the well done. We're trying to earn the good job. Could it be that our heart needs something that we can't earn? I think so. True satisfaction only comes in giftedness, in being given something. It's not something that we can earn. We can earn money. We can earn a legacy. We can even earn dignity. But truth is that no human being can earn or create true enjoyment or deep satisfaction. Only God can give it. Only God can provide it. We seek to earn the well done of others when ultimate purpose comes in once again hearing the well done of God. You are my child in whom I, well, I am well pleased. Enjoyment comes when we stop trying to earn God's gift and we simply start receiving it. What we need is not treasure as a result of our toil, but, but rather to be treasured by the one that created us, right? We don't need treasure. We need to be the treasure. Because of sin, there's no way any way that we could earn it. This pleasure, this enjoyment, they're his gift to humanity made available by the beauty of the gospel. Jesus' ultimate work was to provide for you and for me through his perfect life, his substitutionary death on the cross and his resurrection frees us from the vanity of pursuing futility and meaninglessness in toil. Someone had to do the work. Work had to be done. 
but it wasn't us. Martin Luther says, you are saved by work, just not yours. You're saved by someone else's work. Jesus says, come to me all who, are, who, are, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. When this happens, our work is redeemed, guys. Our attitude changes. Our focus changes from finding significance in our work to knowing that we've been freely loved in Christ. When we root our our value and our worth in him and what he's freely given us, then our view of work can't be helped but be transformed. We're not going into it for empty, self-centered purposes to achieve or to gain. We're doing it because it's a gift from him. Even our work is a gift. Instead of it defining us, our work becomes a tool through which God can both use us and bless us. This only happens when we make it all about Jesus. And not only do we find the answer to our purpose in Jesus, but we find the solution to our problem of seeking after pleasures in other places in Jesus. There is true joy in Jesus. To know the solution to joy, though, I want to read you this definition of joy. Joy is an intense, stable type of happiness directed at the ultimately worthy object. That's joy. Jesus told a certain woman at the well where this type of joy could be found. He said, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him springs of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus has the joy we need. He is the one who brings the enjoyment that we missed in the garden. Because he brings us into right relationship with God. The joy that was designed for humanity is ours in Christ. He is the source of true intimacy, true pleasure, true joy. He is that ultimately worthy object. And he's not just an object, he's a person. Jesus knows the pressures of life under the sun. When it comes to temptation, do you think Jesus understood? Yes, he did. Yes, he does. Do you remember when Satan led him into the, tempta- into the, the wilderness to be tempted and said, Jesus, all of this, all these pleasures can be yours, Jesus. But he resisted. Why? Because he knew the truth about pleasure. As God in the flesh, Jesus saw through the lie of pleasure as purpose approach to life. He knew it was passing away. Jesus wasn't always tempted, yet he didn't yield to the things that we so often yield to. But you know why that's good news? Because he's now the perfect rescuer for us who constantly turn to those things. He is our salvation. He is the answer to our vain pursuits. We're finding pleasure in all the wrong places in all the wrong ways. Once we realize that God is the source, 
we're on the path to redeeming pleasure. Pleasures aren't bad, but Jesus has to be the source. God wants us to enjoy his gifts. He wants us to enjoy life. And with God at the center, you can enjoy gifts without crushing them or twisting them. Pleasure is redeemed when it's not our all. Pleasure is simply a means to, it's simply meant to be a sign. It's a sign of what's to come. It's like when you want to go to this city and you've been wanting to go to the city for a long time. When you stop at the sign that's two kilometers out and says you're at this city, it's like you get out and you hug that signpost as if it's, it's what you, you were looking for the whole time. And you turn around and you don't even go to the city. Or better yet, when we pursue pleasure as our end, it's like a bride, right? The bride's coming down the aisle, the groom's up the front, you know, lip quivering, can't wait to see his bride. She gets down the front, and instead of, like, hugging her and thinking, oh, man, my bride is so beautiful, he falls on her, the train of her gown, and he's like, oh, your gown, your dress, it's so beautiful. Pleasure will never satisfy us. Jesus is the object that brings true joy. You can have laughter when it's not your life. You can have these things when they're not your life. You can have money and possessions, but you don't live for them. Jesus, again, is the true and better preacher king. And only he brings us ultimate joy and pleasure. That's what we were designed for, church. Psalm 1611 says, You make me to know the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Church, instead of pleasing yourself to to death or amusing yourself to death, enjoy God and lay hold on eternal life. Jesus is the cure for your addictions, your vain pursuits. Jesus is the answer to life's difficult questions. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Again, you were and are Jesus' treasure, so make Jesus your treasure today. As we come to the communion tables now, if there's been ways in which you've been seeking joy and purpose in things that were never designed to fulfill, then I want to encourage you, confess it. Repent and then rejoice that your guilt has been taken away in Christ. There's no remembrance of the guilt. The Bible says that if we confess, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from unrighteousness. And so that's what these times are for, to to, to reflect on, on these things, to reflect on the fact that it is finished. He's done the work for you. And if you're that person that we prayed for at the very beginning that's never discovered Jesus as the great purpose under, you know, the greatest purpose and joy under the sun, then can I implore you to to make that decision now? Many of you have been coming for a while and discovering a little bit more of this spiritual journey, but can I say that today is the day of salvation? The Bible says that tomorrow, as somber and as sad as it might be, may be too late. You have an opportunity today to make Jesus your greatest treasure because he made you his. He was willing to lay it all down for the joy that was set before him to endure the cross, despise the shame for you. If that's you, I want to encourage you, Brad and myself and Robin are going to be up the back. We would love to pray for you. We would love to 
not even if that's you that you've never made that decision, but if you just need prayer, please come for prayer. Remember, if anyone had the right to rest and not to toil, or to just simply enjoy pleasure at his Father's right hand, it was Jesus. But he chose to come for you. You are his treasure and his joy. He willingly took on the form of a servant and accomplished for you the work that you couldn't so that you can experience the joy of your salvation forever. It is finished. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that that you are the source and the reason for life, for true joy. We pray, God, that the things that we have found our significance in would be stripped away and that, God, we would see you high and lifted up for all that you are and that, God, our life would be a life of worship and enjoyment as a result of what you've done and not what we can earn. Transform our heart, we pray, in your strong name. Amen.